Good morning, church. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Judges chapter 4. I'm going to read the first 10 verses there, Judges 4. The title of this morning's message is Ending Oppression. Ending Oppression. Verse 1. When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Harosheth Hogoyim. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Now Deborah, a prophetess, wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. Then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kedesh in Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor. Take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun, and against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. So she said, I will surely go with you, nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah rose and went to Barak, went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. He went up with 10,000 men under his command, and Deborah went up with him. As the story progresses, in fact, in the very next verse, it describes a man named Heber. We Y'all know the place called Heber Springs. It's named after this man, Heber. Heber is the husband of Jael. Uh, As the battle breaks out, uh, Heber has a a home very close to where the battle is being fought. However, he's different from the other Israelites. In fact, he's not an Israelite ethnically. He's a a part of the Kenite group of people. They were descended from Moses' father-in-law, uh, but they had settled with the people of God in, in, in the promised land. And so he should have been part of the people of God. But he had made a deal. In fact, if you go down and read verse 17, he had made peace with Jabin. And can I just say before I go further that making peace with the enemy is about the dumbest thing you can do. God has never called you to make peace with an enemy. He's called you to defeat the enemy. Now, we're not talking about flesh and blood, are we? We've been studying this now for several weeks. But he's never called us to make peace with the enemy. That never ends well. Well, as the battle breaks out in a supernatural and a remarkable way, uh, this man, Barak, is enabled with his 10,000 troops to defeat this, this technically superior army. They have 900 chariots. And 
and in that defeat, all of the opposing uh, military men are killed, except Sisera. He runs away. He escapes to this nearby home of the man named Heber. And Jael, his wife, sees Sisera coming, and she invites him to hide in his tent. Now, in that day and time, men did not go into women's tents, so it was a pretty safe place to hide. And so he goes in the tent, asks for a drink of water. She gives him milk. Some scholars suggest that probably helped make him sleepy. He goes to sleep thinking he's safe, and she takes a tent peg, a long uh, piece of iron, metal, takes a tent peg, and you've got to understand that the women of that day and era weren't, were not wimps, not that any women are. I don't want any hate mail because I said that. But they were the ones that pitched the tents, and they were the ones that set up the camp, and so she was very used to doing what she was about to do, except I don't know how many times she did this. If I were her husband, I would have really paid attention to her after this. <laughs> she takes that tent peg, she puts it up to that sleeping man's temple, she drives it straight through his head into the ground. And this mighty military general is completely defeated, and every man that had opposed the people of God is wiped out. Would you pray with me? Father, as we open up your word, we, we gather here today, many of us for different reasons and with a different level of awareness of the spiritual conflict in which we're engaged. I pray, Father, today you would open each of our eyes to our own condition. Help us to see what areas of oppression we might be experiencing as individuals or as families, as a church or in our community where we live. Father, we confess today that without you, we are absolutely weak against this much darker and stronger power that we cannot see. And Father, I pray you would forgive us for the things that we have allowed to settle into our lives, the things that we have allowed to settle into the lives of our families. Father, I pray you would fill us today, not only with your Holy Spirit, but with a renewed faith that through you we can conquer every enemy and that oppression can end. I pray you would open the eyes of those today who are not even aware of the level of the hardness of their own heart. I pray you would open the eyes of those who have recognized problems in their life but had not once brought those problems to you in prayer. I pray you would open our eyes to those situations in our families or around us in people's lives and where we should have been praying for them and interceding for them, that you would break the power of the enemy over them, we have settled down and allowed it to go on. And so we ask you, Almighty God, to come here among us through your Holy Spirit to speak to each of us and to end the oppression in Wynn, Arkansas. And may it begin with us as your people. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God wants to set his people free from every form of bondage. Do you believe that? We have been hoodwinked by our culture and our society into believing that certain things that set up in our lives are just so difficult and so hard to deal with that some people, while some people are successful, most of us are not successful and we just have to live with these things our entire life. And that's what the enemy wants you to believe. 
And of course, I'm not talking about just any kind of oppression. There's different kinds of oppression. But the kind I'm talking about today, the kind that involve habitual sin or very powerful destructive emotions that can set up in our hearts. And I want you to know that the Lord wants to set you free. The book of Judges describes a kind of oppression that comes when people turn away from God, forget God, and so the kind of trouble that we read about over and over in Judges is actually self-inflicted. We've studied this already, how when we turn from the Lord, he, he will let us go in the sense that he will allow us to experience the consequences of our own choices. We, he will very much allow you and I to reap what we sow. And so the book of Judges is story after story after story of how God allows this cycle where the pressure comes in the form of some oppression that comes into a person's life. And then as they begin to realize, my life isn't working, I can't take care of me, and they begin to cry out to God, God sends a deliverer. And that deliverer enables them, once again, to see the presence of God manifested through a human being, but sees the presence of God manifested in some way that they forget about their false gods, they forget about everything else that they've been trusting, and their heart is renewed in their trust of God. This self-inflicted consequence that you and I can experience can also be something that the enemy can use. I believe one of the reasons that the people of God suffered for so long in this book, eight years, 18 years, 20 years, many years, under this oppression is because they, some of those people realize, I am in this situation, it is my own fault, I have created it, and I don't even see how God can begin to hear me when I cry. And so we don't even bother to try to call on him. But that's another lie of the enemy. The truth about you, if you know Jesus Christ this morning, is that you have been redeemed. That word redeemed is a very specific, technical kind of word in the New Testament. It appears throughout the Scripture. But particularly in the New Testament, it's a very technical word, and it describes what happens when someone who is a slave, someone comes along and pays the price for their freedom, and they are set free. They are called a redeemed person at that point. They've been set free by the payment of a price. And for you and me, that price was the blood and the life of Jesus Christ. And so you have been redeemed. You have a set free life that is yours to be lived. A kind of life where you don't have to endure those kinds of feelings or internal things of oppression that torment you and that go on and on and on. You have been set free, but not for oppression, but for a very real kind of freedom. Now, every person sitting here has these same three enemies. The Bible talks about it in Ephesians 2. You can just make a note of that, but they are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And what you need to understand is those aren't three equal enemies. The world is a system of values. The world is a system of ways of approaching life. It is what you get through osmosis, through the culture, through the family, through the world that you live in. But it is a whole system of life that enables you to do life without the presence of the power of God. The world, it's a system. It's not true, it's not real, but it feels real. And it's a kind of thing where you and I make decisions because that's just what everybody does and that's the right thing to do. And of course, when you, and, and it starts very, very young. What are you going to be when you grow up? You're supposed to decide. You go through school, you go through high school, maybe you go to college. And, and there's just a whole stepped out approach to life and the world offers that to you. There's the flesh, that body of desires that you were born with and that you deal with throughout your earthly existence. The flesh represents that part of you that 
that wants to rebel, that part of you that wants to do life without God. It's a whole collection of desires that have been corrupted by sin that has been transmitted generation by generation by generation. But I want you to understand that the devil, who's the third enemy of your soul, the devil does a great deal of damage to you and to the people that you love through the world and through your flesh. In other words, there's someone behind a lot of the power of those two enemies, the world and the flesh. And it is a very real enemy, the devil, who's at work. Now, I want to share with you one basic truth. In one sense, I could, should be able to share this truth and we just go home. Uh, don't amen that, but let me just give you this basic truth. This is the most important thing that I think you can get this morning, and then everything else is just kind of building on this. One basic truth, here it is. Only God can end the oppression of the enemy. Only God. You can't do it. Only God can do it. And so if you're here today thinking, I'm going to get better and better, I can overcome these things in my life, or my, my friend, if I get them to the right places, to the right people, they can overcome these things. You can't do it without him. Because only God can change the heart. And only God can set the heart that's in bondage free. So you need God. Now what I'm going to give you this morning as we look at this story of Deborah and Barak is not a formula. This is not a checklist. But it is very much a process. And this is not the entire process. But it's very much a process that you need to understand that God wants to take you through to end oppression. And I would, I would argue that no one experiences freedom from oppression without passing through these things. So understanding that, here's the question. How will God end oppression in your life? Whatever this thing is that you're dealing with or in someone that you love, how will God end oppression? He will do four things. Number one, he brings you to a moment of deep desperation and dissatisfaction with your life. He brings that moment. And we certainly see that in the life of these, the nation of Israel in verse 3. It says, and the children of Israel cried out, cried out. That means to wail, to cry for help. They cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron. For 20 years, he harshly that means vehemently, with great force. He harshly oppressed. And that word literally means to press, to crush. He crushed the children of Israel. Now there's two major forms of oppression that you may be experiencing. One of them, illustrated in this text, is the kind of oppression that God brings when we have been disobedient and we are unrepentant. And God allows a certain kind of pressure to come into our life to discipline us, to correct us, because he's our father, and you're his son, you're his daughter, and if you don't experience that kind of pressure when you're running from God, you have a, something missing in your life. Because when you belong to him, when you're his son, you're his daughter, he doesn't let you go on and on and on and on. And so don't delude yourself into thinking that you're saved when you can go on and on and on acting like a complete rejection of God in your life and nothing ever happens to capture your attention and bring you back to the tender heart of God. One form of oppression is a kind God allows when we've been disobedient. There's another kind of oppression. It's the kind when Satan attacks us for being obedient. 
One is disobedience, and God brings it. The other is obedience, and Satan brings it. Now, God may use Satan in both kinds, but the driving force and the, the purpose of it is a little different. And in this particular case, of course, it's God correcting a people because of disobedience. Now, I want you to understand that you and I, whether you understand it or not, whether you, whether you realize it or not, you are engaged in a great spiritual conflict right now, every single one of you. There's a battle, for example, for your minds, for your mind. And it's going on all the time. And, and the outward manifestation of this spiritual battle can take many different forms. So when this oppression manifests itself, it can take many different forms. Let me share just a few with you. Uh, probably one that's most common is crime. Crime can be a manifestation, an, a visible manifestation of an invisible conflict. In Job chapter 1, we, we see an example of this, where because of his obedience, God allows Satan to test him. And so this dear man's under attack. But it shows you how oppression is manifested openly. And the enemy does this. This isn't God doing this. This is the enemy doing this. In Job 1, he animated, he inspired Satan, empowered a group of people called Sabaeans. They were just raiders. They came and they raided his farms. They carried off 1,000 oxen, 500 donkeys. That's a lot of wealth that went out the door. Killed all of his servants. In another instance, and also in chapter 1, it says... Three groups or bands of Chaldeans came, and they killed his servants and took 7,000 camels. Now, that'd be like someone carrying off all your wealth, all of every kind of wealth that you have. That's what happened. He, he also manifests not just in crime in an area. He also manifests in terms of natural disaster. In Job chapter 1, there's a lightning strike. Now, the people observing it said this fire came from God. It wasn't from God. We know that because we're the reader and, and the, the person writing the book is giving us clues as to what's happening. But it says lightning, a lightning strike came. It killed 7,000 sheep and all the shepherds tending the sheep. One lightning strike. Later, a great wind comes and destroys a house. It was the oldest son's house. And all seven of his sons and three of his daughters were killed in one tornadic type storm. Now, who's doing all of that? God told Satan, he could test Job. Do you see something of how the enemy manifests his activity? Did you know that he could manifest in natural disasters? That he could manifest himself in crime? That he could manifest himself in conflict, in war? He can manifest himself in physical illness. When Satan is allowed to attack Job physically, there are boils, sores, pain that's inflicted on his body. Multiple times in the New Testament, a disease stopped. Now, not all disease is caused by a demonic um, driver, but there were instances in the New Testament where a disease, like a man that couldn't speak in Matthew 9, he is able to speak when God casts the demon out, when Jesus tells it to leave. Another man in Matthew 12 couldn't see, couldn't speak. God tells it to leave. Now he can see, now he can speak. And so there was a demonic driver to those physical illnesses and diseases. There's a demonic driver behind child abuse and abortion. That can be a manifestation of the enemy. We've already seen in, in the book of Judges how 
Child sacrifice very much was driven by the false gods or the demonic spirits who animated those gods in Canaan. Political and social oppression can be a manifestation of the enemy. Three times in the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. We talked about this before, but that word ruler is a Greek word, archon, and that word was used to describe the highest governmental authority in any given region. And Jesus said, Jesus said that Satan is the archon of this world. Three times. And so what do you think he does in the world? Makes it a lovely place to live? You think he's all about justice? You think he's all about people getting the food they need, the water they need to drink, causing nations to live peacefully with one another? We see in the scripture in Exodus 12, verse 12, where God says very clearly that what he is doing and bringing the plagues on the people of Egypt is he is judging the gods of Egypt. One of the things that's happening is there's this great spiritual conflict and he's destroying the demon gods of Egypt. They were the demonic drivers that were inspiring the oppression of the people of God in Egypt. Exodus 12, 12. So political, social oppression, mass murder, serial killings. In John 8, 44, Jesus is speaking to a group of religious leaders. He says, you are of your father the devil who's a liar and a murderer from the beginning. A murderer. Who do you think inspired Cain to kill Abel? And what's really significant about that is Jesus spoke those words to a group of religious leaders. What also shows us that there are religious systems that are designed to shame you and keep you from trusting God and his grace. You are of your fathers, he says. Your father, Satan, a liar and a murderer from the beginning. A demonic manifestation in a person's life can take the form of losing all self-control. We might call it a mental illness. It's the worst form of demonization that you see in the New Testament. The gathering demoniac in Mark 5, also found in Luke, is an example of this. This man has totally lost control of his own body and his own senses. His human personality is moved to the back seat, and a demonic personality is moved to the front seat. He speaks with other voices. He has an awareness of things that that no human being has. He knows Jesus just when Jesus walks up. He recognizes him. He has superhuman strength. They try to bind him with chains. He breaks those chains. In the book of Acts, there was a guy that that was able to overcome seven other men when he was demonized. So he had this supernatural strength. He is in agony. He screams. He cuts himself with stones. He lives in the tombs, a place of death. And this is ultimately a a picture both graphically and real and symbolically what the enemy wants to do in every heart in this room. If you let him. He manifests in regional and sometimes physical attachments to particular locations. In the same story of the Gadarene demoniac, when Jesus is about to tell the demons to leave this man, They beg him. They keep begging him. Do not make us leave this region, they say in the text. Don't make us leave this region. You can make us leave this man, but don't make us leave this region. Now, why is that? Because there are areas, there are places where the enemy attaches himself. If you don't believe that, just drive through any town. Look at those parts of town that are economically 
uh, well-to-do and prosperous and then drive to the other part of town where not so much. I met with a church some years ago in a consultation, and we were talking about whether they should stay in their neighborhood or move. They were strategically located. They were the only church in a neighborhood that was being overrun slowly by drugs, by meth. There were meth houses not far from where that church was physically located. Most of the church was driving in to, to, um, to, to worship in that church building. And so do we stay or do we leave? I said, well, you have to decide what your mission is. They said, what do you mean? They said, well, is your mission to have a nice, comfortable worship on Sunday morning, or is your mission to do battle with the forces of darkness and drive the enemy back? I said, you have an opportunity to go through those neighborhoods around your church to pray, stop at every house and pray, oh God, we don't know who lives here, we don't know who belongs here, but we pray, Almighty God, that you would release this house, set these people free, drive the enemy out, and that these people might come to hear and know Jesus Christ through the gospel. They moved. And that neighborhood is exponentially worse today in terms of crime than it was then. They attach themselves sometimes to churches, things, people, relationships. He manifests in different ways. It can manifest in mental or emotional struggles. It can attack the mind. Strongholds can form. The Bible talks about this in 2 Corinthians 10. He is a liar, and a stronghold is typically a collection of lies. It's a way of thinking about the world that's not true. It's a way of thinking about yourself that's not true. And he can take normal thoughts, normal doubts, normal emotions of bitterness and jealousy and prejudice and worry and fear and guilt and whatever your issue is, and he can magnify that thing so that it seems so big, so powerful, it's like a dark monster that just has a life of its own. And you just feel helpless in the face of it. And don't even ask me what I think about when I think of the Delta, where you and I live, is a manifestation of the enemy's effort to oppress human beings. Now, before God acts, he waits. What's he waiting for? Well, there came a moment in the life of his people here where under this awful pressure, they realized their, their helplessness. I can't save myself. And there was great desperation, and the oppressed cried out, God, help me! And they responded in that way, just crying out to him. And then he sent a deliverer. In the New Testament, his name is Jesus. Jesus standing up, the very first public message that he preached in Luke 4.18, he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind. And then look at this, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And we don't have a clue. We think he came to comfort the oppressed. In Acts 10.38, when Peter's teaching Cornelius about Jesus, he says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good, and look at this, and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. I need a Savior. 
You need a Savior. He is not me. And he is not you. We need Jesus. So the battle rages. While you and I are sitting here, the battle is raging. He wants to keep the lost blind to the truth. He wants to take the redeemed who have been set free from bondage and keep them living in bondage. Number two, how will God end depression in your life? He brings a moment of deep desperation and dissatisfaction. Number two, he creates a hunger in you that only he can satisfy. A hunger only he can satisfy. Look at verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah, it was named that after her, between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim. And look at this. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now during those 20 years that the people were oppressed by Jabin, there was a woman who was seeking God. She was praying She was meditating, she was communing, she was believing God. And God began to work through her. When the time was right, God began to speak through her, and it was incredible what happened. Her strength was not physical. She didn't have iron chariots. She didn't have a massive army. All she had was the Spirit of God. And you need to know that if the Spirit of God lives in you, you have more than enough to defeat the oppression that's in your life. In the very same way, the people, all they knew is that this lady spoke in a way that no one else spoke. I would go to her discouraged. I would go to her confused. I would go to her not knowing which end was up. And I would leave with my heart on fire just by talking to this woman. And God was using her, a woman, to change a nation. And to deliver them. Now why did the people line up to hear her? Why were they doing it now? Why weren't they doing it 20 years ago? Why weren't they doing it 60 years earlier? 80 years earlier? When they had time of peace? The difference is that at this moment in their lives, these people were hungry for God. The pressure had grown so great, they were crying out in desperation. And God was answering their cry. And and he had created a hunger in their heart that only he could satisfy. And when this woman spoke what God was telling her to speak, their hunger was being met by the Word of God and by the Spirit of God. The psalmist prays in Psalm 51.10, Create in me a clean heart, O God. The work that God wants to do in you is going to start in your heart. It's not going to start in your bank account. It's not going to start with whatever external oppression that you're dealing with. It's not going to start in the community. It's not going to start in the church. It's not going to start anywhere else. When God begins to work to set you free, he's going to start a work in your heart. And part of that is going to create a hunger in you that only he can satisfy. Number three, God ends oppression. He brings us to a moment of deep desperation. He creates a hunger in you. And then number three, he draws you into ever-deepening levels of dependence. Ever-deepening levels of dependence. I don't care how long you've walked with God, the next step of faith is just a little bit harder than the last one. And you have to depend on him more and more and more and more. Does it ever get easier? No, because we live in this world on this side of heaven. I can't see, I can't hear physically what's going on in that world, but I can believe and I can trust him. 
In verse 6 it says, Then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded? And she just, she just tells him, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor. Take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun. And against you, God says, I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. Now what would you have said to her? What would you have thought to say next? I mean, God was obviously at work in Barak. No question about it. And suddenly, this people that had not been able to do anything were being mobilized by a lady who speaks for God and a man who believes God. The very next words out of his mouth, verse 8, says, Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Now, why did he say that? I'll tell you what, if you read the average commentary, you're going to be very disappointed in Barak. Because the average scholar will write about this in this way. Well, Barak, God wanted to use him, but he couldn't find uh, enough umption in this guy, so he raised up a woman. And, uh, and he only raised up a woman because he couldn't find a good man. I mean, that's, that's I'm just paraphrasing, but... And so, and so Barak's problem is at this very moment is he's not trusting God the way he should trust God. In fact, I actually read those words that he has a lack of faith in my own life application Bible that I've used in my quiet time for over 25 years. In fact, I put it up on the screen. I copied it. Can you see it? Was Barak cowardly or just in need of support? We don't know Barak's character, but we see the character of a great leader in Deborah who took charge as God directed. Deborah told Barak that God would be with him in battle, but that was not enough for Barak. He wanted Deborah to go with him. Barak's request shows that at the heart, he trusted human strength more than God's promise. A person of real faith steps out at God's command. Let me read that again. A person of real faith steps out at God's command, even if he or she must do so alone. I got a great Hebrew word for you to apply to that statement. Hogwash. That is absolutely untrue. And it's a kind of slander against this man, Barak. Because in Hebrews chapter 11, we've got a recounting of men and women of great faith. They are held up as examples for you and me because of the faith they exhibited. They weren't perfect people, but they were men and women who believed God. And in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, after talking about a bunch of other people, The writer of Hebrews says, What more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and who? Who? Barak and Samson and Jephthah. We're going to have more trouble with them than Barak. Also of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms. Barak was not a man with weak faith. He had great faith. Barak was absolutely dependent on God. He says, you've spoken the word from God to me. I believe you. I'm going to do what you said. But listen, lady, I'm not, about to take a, I'm not about to take a step unless I know God's in it. I'm not going to move without him. And so, lady, you're the only one I know that speaks for God. If you don't go with me, I'm not going. 
it wasn't a lack of faith. It was an absolute dependence on the Word of God. In fact, when the time came, when she said, today's the day, Barak, he just got up and went. Didn't hesitate, didn't, didn't flinch. He was ready to do everything that God told him to do, but he wanted that lady with him. He said, all I know is that when she speaks, she tells the truth, and, and God's with her, and God speaks to me through her, and whatever she says, I know it's from the Lord, and I'm going to take that to the bank, and I'm going to do it. And listen, as you walk with God, as you begin to deal with the problem that you're facing in your life, God is going to lead you in that same path of ever-increasing dependency on him to where you get to a place where you're not even sure what pants to put on in the morning. That you don't have the confidence to make any of your own decisions. That you are trusting him to lead and to guide you. And look, if you have the Holy Spirit living in you this morning, you've got something better than Deborah living in you. The Holy Spirit of God is there to be for you all that Jesus would be if he were standing in front of you and said, Don, follow me today. He does that with you. The Holy Spirit is with you, and he is there to lead you and guide you in your efforts to follow Jesus Christ. He wants to guide you in your, your redeemed life. He'll guide you to freedom. Number four, God ends oppression by bringing desperation and dissatisfaction to your life. He creates a hunger only he can satisfy. He leads you in ever-deepening levels of dependence. And then number four, he reveals himself powerfully in and through your life. Now, up to this moment, they were not yet free from the oppression. And the other things that God was doing, God was at work. It was real, but they were not yet free. The freedom came when this man began to act on the Word of God, when he began to believe and to trust. And at that moment, God worked in him a marvelous thing and then worked through him a marvelous, unspeakably, supernatural, amazing thing. Look at verse, um, well, let me start first with chapter 5. Now look, chapter 4 is the story of what happened. Chapter 5 is the wild party celebration and song of the defeat of Jabin. Now, so chapter 5 is a whole song about what happened. I wish I could hear the music, but, but the words are there, okay? And in chapter 5, verses 6 and 8, listen, it describes the conditions before the battle. You with me? Describes the conditions before the battle. The highways were deserted, and the travelers walked along the byways. You know why they did that? Because it wasn't safe. It was too scary to go down the highway by yourself. The world was a real dark and dangerous place. Village life ceased, it says in the scripture. No social interaction. People were afraid of their neighbors. They just kind of hid out. And everything was dangerous, everything was scary, everything was dark. Village life ceased. And then later it says there was war in the gates, not outside the gates, inside, right where I live. The enemy was coming in, bringing the war right to me, right to my doorstep. And boy, if America doesn't realize that's coming our way, we're just blind. There was war in the gates. Not a shield or spear was seen among the 40,000 in Israel. They didn't lift a, a hand to defend themselves. And for 100 years, they had not fought against the enemies of God. 80 years of peace from their enemies, 20 years of oppression for Jabin, 100 years they had not fought. And God had said to drive these people out of the land, and they had not fought. For generations, they'd come to believe they could not defeat the iron chariots. It began with the generation that first entered the promised land. We've seen that already in chapter 1. 
We, and, and they just had talked themselves into defeat as a way of life. But they were not able to do it. I just can't do it, Pastor, it's just too hard. I've tried, I've tried, I've tried. I can't do it, I can't do it. You can't do it. You can't. But Jesus can do anything. So in chapter 4, we have this Barak man who says, I can do anything and everything God says I can do. Listen to what he does in verse 14. Then Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? You know, battle hadn't even started. God's out front. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. So he's out front. And the Lord routed Sisera and how many of his chariots? All his chariots. And how much of his army? All his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. And you know what happens to Sisera. Now Barak was no match for Sisera. And you are no match for the oppression in your life. But listen, Sisera was no match for God. And neither is the oppression in your life. God is great. God is mighty. God is powerful. And he did not make you to live under the enemy's foot your entire life. I don't care what the enemy has in his arsenal. It is nothing compared to the power of God. We think things are so hard. Um... Al, come up here. Would you come up here a second? Just stand up here, buddy. This is Al McCullough. Y'all say hi, Al. Hi, Mary. This is Mary. Al's my friend. And um, Al's a neighbor. He just lives down the street from here. And uh, Al, have you ever seen one of these puzzles? It's a couple of nails that are bent together. And uh, they're, they're really hard to get apart. Have you ever done one of these? No. I was hoping you hadn't. Would you try to take that apart? Yeah, how long do I have? Not, not much time. If you know how to do it, you ain't going to make it. I don't know how to do it. All right. And that is where a lot of us are when you and I encounter oppression. Is we, we encounter something that's so big, so strong, so powerful, and we realize I can't do it. And so instead of crying out to God, we tend to settle down. You can sit down now. Thank you all. Y'all give out a hand. <clears throat> we tend to settle down with, with a knot of <clears throat> a puzzle that we can't solve. And because we can't solve it, we assume it can't be solved. And we just sort of settle down to live with it. And those of you, how many of y'all know this nail trick? Probably, yeah, I know. There's a bunch of people here. And so, and so if you fiddle with this thing long enough, you'll probably, you'll probably figure it out by accident. But, um, but once you do, it comes, comes apart easily. It wasn't hard at all. Now, Al acted like it was hard. Was it hard? Was it hard? No. No, but I, I bamboozled Al into thinking it was hard. And, you know, we think it's so hard to defeat the enemy in our life, to, to defeat the oppression that we experience. And... Um, and so we listen to the lies of the enemy, and we think, I can never be free, and this is just the way my life's going to be the rest of my life. Listen, it's not hard. 
Jesus Christ said he came to those who are being oppressed so that he could set them free. And based on the authority of God's word, not my word, on the authority of God's word, I can tell you right now that if you'll turn to Jesus and cry out to him, he'll save you. He'll save you. You can't stop sinning. He can change your heart, cause you to grow and experience more and more victory over sin. You can't carry away the guilt of your sin. You're going to feel guilty the rest of your life. I don't care what you've done. You're going to feel guilty. If you don't feel guilty, you're just blind to your own sinfulness. And you can't carry away your guilt. But Jesus on the cross, when you turn to him, he carries away all your guilt. And you become in the sight of God as clean as a newborn child, cleaner. And he accepts you and loves you and pours out on you all the grace and mercy and love and tenderness and kindness that he has for his own son, Jesus Christ. It's not hard. Dear one, it's not hard. You turn to Jesus, it's easy. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing, and Mike and I will be standing at the front. And maybe your first step is just to turn to God. In the pew where you'll be standing in the balcony, you may just need to cry out to God. The song, I don't know what we're going to sing. Let that be your cry. But you've got to cry out to him. These people cried. They wailed. God, help me. I got nowhere else to turn. I've tried everything. I'm at the end of my rope. I'm beyond the end of my rope. I'm in free fall. God, help me. And some of y'all are there. You need to do that. You need to cry out to him. Others of you are at different places on this journey. God's at work in your heart. Some of y'all just need to get to a place where you can believe what God says. Some of y'all just need to wake up to realize that you're in trouble, that you've settled for a way of life that he never intended you to settle for. Will you turn to him? Or will you be like the people here, five years, ten years, twenty years, hundred years, and they never got it. Whole generations never got it. Never understood that God's, the Father's heart for you is to set you free. The Father's heart for you is to set you free.